You really don't like to talk about the past, do you? Tired. No, why does it bother you to talk about it? Bothers everybody that works there. Where? Chinatown. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's Chinatown Retrospective Series. I was trying to keep someone from being hurt. I ended up making sure that she was hurt. A retrospective chosen by David Kraft. Oh, you're gonna make me do it, aren't you? You're gonna make me... Oh, you're gonna make me... Hosted by Arnie. You've got a nasty reputation. I like that. Jacob. You can call him a capable man. Very. And Stuart. What I do for a living may not be very reputable, but I am. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. We hope you enjoy the show. I see you like publicity, Mr. Giddies. Are you going to get it? Today we're discussing The Two Jakes, starring Jack Nicholson, Harvey Keitel, Meg Tilly, Madeline Stowe, Eli Wallach, Reuben Blades, Frederick Forrest, David Keith, and Richard Farnsworth, directed by Jack Nicholson. What? Yep, there's The Two Jacks. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I suppose it's fair to say podcasting made me what I am today. And Stuart. And this is the host that got dimes. Jacob, look, good, bad, indifferent, I love every time they say got dimes in this. Like, I thought that was going to be a plot point. At some point, someone would need dimes, but (laughs) I just love that line every time they said it. Got dimes? So the two Jakes, we are here covering it. Thanks again to David Kraft, who decided we needed to review both movies in this duology, aborted trilogy, and I remember this movie coming out. I mentioned it last show. I thought it was a gangster film. I thought Jack Nicholson played gangsters pretty well. So I was interested in seeing this until I found out it was a sequel. And just never got around to it until this week. But I did know its reputation was that it is no Chinatown. I didn't know this existed. And usually, like, greatest films of all times don't need sequels. Citizen Kane. Vertigo, but I guess Godfather maybe changed that, like, the greatest film of all time could be made into an even greater film sometimes, with some people's opinions, but I had no idea. Why would you make a sequel to Chinatown? But The Two Jakes, it doesn't even have Chinatown in the title, how would you know? Alright, so let's just refresh and remind that Robert Town, the screenwriter, when conceiving the first movie, said, I'm making three. I'm telling a longer story about the history of Los Angeles using elemental forces. Second movie is going to have fire and earth. First movie was water. And so that was always in the cards. They were always going to do it. I agree. That first Chinatown movie worked out so well, you'd hate to see them try to go forward. It didn't ask to have a sequel when you see that ending. But it was always the plan. And, I mean, here's the truth. If they had been able to retain the entire original team and make it when they thought they were going to, 
we might have had something entirely different than what we do now. I mean, the plan was, a couple years later, Robert Town writes the script, Jack Nicholson gets back in the part, Dustin Hoffman will play Jake, and Polanski could direct again. Except a little problem happened when Polanski decided to hang out in Nicholson's pad on March 10th, 1977, and decided to roofie a 13-year-old girl. And because of that, he had to flee the country rather than answer questions. He has never stepped foot in America again. He cannot return to Los Angeles to direct a sequel. They would have to recreate the city on European sound stages, which they considered doing, but realized that that would be too expensive. Easier to do now than back in the 90s. You just green screen it all now. Right. But again, it was just for lots of reasons. It's also worth pointing out Chinatown was a hit, but it wasn't a mega hit. And so it didn't have to happen. It only stayed on the radar because the people that were involved wanted to see it happen because Nicholson considered it one of his greatest roles and wanted his friend Robert Town to finish the trilogy. And so they tried again right after Pritzi's honor. Nicholson did a mafia movie in the mid 80s. It did well, nominated for Best Picture, directed by John Huston. He had some room in his schedule. The idea this time was, well, maybe Robert Town would make the right director. He had already ventured in there. He had made a, a lesbian athletic movie called Personal Best. Love it. And while it wasn't a hit, he felt like if it can't be Polanski, I'm the closest thing you have to an original creator bringing it to the screen. They cast Kelly McGillis to be Catherine... And they got Dennis Hopper, Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel was going to play a different role. And the reason why it failed was Jake. (laughs) The other Jake, they thought it would be a really cool idea. Jack Nicholson and Robert Town agreed that their good buddy, Bob Evans, the guy that greenlit Chinatown back in 1973, he used to kind of be an actor in the 50s and 60s. Wouldn't it be fun to pull him out of retirement, ask the producer to be the co-star, a little meta. We could bring back the old vibes again. And Evans was psyched. He ran off to Tahiti, got a good tan, did all of this plastic surgery to his face, <laughs> came back, couldn't wait to do the part, and was completely awful in the rehearsals. So bad that as he's giving lines, Kelly McGillis is cracking up. She can't finish her scenes because Robert Evans is so bad. Is there test footage of this? I'm sure there is, and it's probably in private homes. But Robert Evans didn't appreciate being laughed at, didn't appreciate that his friend Robert Town fired him, and so he kind of had the plug pulled on this movie. And again, it's easy to do because I don't feel like the nation is screaming for the sequel. Who wants it? (laughs) Okay, I know you got all this background info, Stuart, but I did not know Jack Nicholson was a director. Has he directed before, and how did he end up here? Like, this is crazy to me. I had to look that up, too. That was just killing me. Yeah, he had definitely directed before, but not hits. In 1971, he made, well, what else does he love? A basketball coming-of-age movie called Drive, he said. Nobody saw it, including me. Never heard of it. (laughs) Yeah, but he got behind the camera. Robert Town had actually worked on that script with him, and so they had kind of collaborated in that way. And then in the late 70s, He'd made a little comedic Western called Going South that bombed, but he had some experience to be the director. So if it wasn't going to be Robert Town, and it should be said that Robert Town tried to make it without Nicholson, he went to Dino De Laurentiis. Oh, no. 
Yeah, he was like, well, I want some money for this. And they were like, well, I can't tell whether Jack cost too much or just didn't want to be involved. But they hired Harrison Ford to take over the part. Same role. Yeah. Kelly McGillis was still going to be Catherine. They got Roy Scheider to be the other Jake. And what happened was Paramount wouldn't give him the license. They said, you'll have to make it not as a Chinatown movie. You'll just have to make it stand on its own. They wouldn't sell them Chinatown rights. And because of that, and I also have to believe because Dino was making so many bombs that we've covered, like Masters of the (laughs) Universe, King Kong Lives, Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, could you get Canon Pictures involved here too? Yeah, it failed. So that project didn't happen. And Nicholson probably couldn't have gotten it made except for Batman. 1989, he's the Joker. He is the highest paid actor of all time. He nets 60 million off of that movie. And he can do anything at Warner Brothers. And the first thing he wants to make is let me revive Chinatown. I can direct this if nobody else can. He saw this as a way of saving it. He didn't really like directing. He should said in previous interviews that when he did go in South and Drive, he said it was a struggle. And this would be a, a movie in which he would have to be in front of and behind the camera working at equal capacity. He didn't like that, but it was the only way this movie was going to get made. It kind of still got done on the cheap. $20 million is pretty low budget for a movie in 1990. And he did what he could and pulled it together and... It is the film we're here to talk about. Why not Chinatown colon the two Jakes? Something to indicate that this is related to a critically acclaimed film. I don't know that they have to. And all I could think about with this is they kind of did it again with Jack Nicholson a few years after this. There was a movie called The Evening Star that I had no idea was a sequel to Terms of Endearment. That has a sequel? Yes! (laughs) It was kind of a trend that was happening right now. A movie from the early 70s called The Last Picture Show had a sequel that came out. That has a sequel too? It wasn't The Last Picture Show? It was called Texasville. Yeah, ironically, it was not The Last Picture Show. You see, I think there are some cases where you're just supposed to know the first movie well enough to realize that it's a sequel even if it doesn't have the original title in the title. And just to get back into film noir traditions, I mean, Sam Spade would be a character in many movies, but he didn't do Maltese Falcon 2. You know what I mean? Okay, so they're going for the James Bond thing. Like, we'll have this character, and he'll just show up in all kinds of films. I think so. Yeah, I think that that was the intention. And here's the funny thing. This thing ran on cable a lot. I saw Two Jakes before I saw Chinatown. (laughs) I knew this movie first. Did it make any sense? None. Yeah, what I remembered (laughs) about it, it was made almost no sense But I internalized all of that as my fault for not knowing the original storyline. This probably made a whole lot of sense if you saw the first one. I didn't experience it as a bad movie, but I definitely felt like, oh, I really need to find that other movie. The only thing I could have told you about it was that Meg Tilly was like a survivor of incest. And Jack Nicholson sits on a well and it blows up in his ass and he goes flying. Only two things I could have told you. Woo, can't wait to talk about that scene. (laughs) But yes, this movie, if nothing else, was not an enormous hit. Certainly, we can talk about quality, but in terms of box office, 1975 money, Chinatown made $30 million. 1990 money, Two Jakes opens in seventh place. It was behind Ghost, Flatliners, Presumed Innocent, Young Guns 2, even Problem Child was kicking its ass. Oh no, Problem Child's beating you. There's problems. They opened it in August of 1990, which is just a dead time. They had no confidence in this. 
and it was a tortured production. We can talk about it as we get into it, but basically they went in without a finished script. Robert Town was supposed to deliver it. And keep in mind, they tweaked things in Chinatown, and the director made choices that were not in the original script, so that in and of itself is not a deal-breaker. But yeah, Jack Nicholson talks about having waiting hours by the fax machine for Town to send him pages while he's on Hawaiian vacation and being disappointed about what comes over the fax. I feel like we experienced that in the film, like characters waiting for faxes to come through with their lines. Yeah, exactly. No one was happy with the way this movie turned out. Most certainly the studio, which I guess recovered costs because of 20 million. It made 10 million in the States and 10 million internationally, but no Oscars, no buzz. And I agree with you. Probably at this point, it is a shock to anyone that they made a sequel. I feel like this movie, forget about it, Jake. They did. They didn't forget about Chinatown. They forgot about two Jakes. Yeah, I've read one very funny thing about this movie is that at one theater in L.A., somebody went to see this, went and complained to the management that gotten the reels out of order. And the manager went and looked and said, you know, you're right. But the thing is, this has been playing here for three weeks and you're the first person to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to put it out there. The editors could only change things up so much. There are just portions of this movie that I suspect weren't even written, much less filmed, that would fill in gaps, huge gaps, in the storyline. Well, Stuart, why don't you fill in what gaps you can with a plot summary? I'll try. (laughs) It's 11 years after the events of Chinatown, and Jack Nicholson's private eye, Jake Geddes, is still mourning the fact that he couldn't save Faye Dunaway's Evelyn Mulray, or stop her father from stealing away Catherine, the daughter of the two sired in incest. But the gumshoe gets a second shot at making that situation right when Catherine's name comes up during conversation between a cheating couple that Giddies is recording. Giddies is there at a Redondo Beach motel because he was hired by a second man named Jake, the Jewish real estate developer Jake Berman, played by Harvey Keitel. Berman said he wanted to catch his wife in bed with another man. Giddies didn't know that Berman would barge into the room and gun the guy down, nor is he convinced that it is a crime of passion after the other man is revealed to be Berman's business partner, Mark Bodine. And now Berman has full control over their $6 million subdivision, known as B&B Homes. The authorities suspect that Berman is guilty of premeditated murder, and maybe think that the wife and Giddies are his accomplices. So you have a lot of people trying to obtain a copy of Giddies' audio recording in the second half of the film, because it might provide conclusive proof as to whether Berman or Bodine shot first. But Giddies remains unwilling to fully cooperate with anyone until he figures out how Catherine Mulray is involved. See, the land in question is the same land that Noah Cross stole from the Orange Farmers in the first movie, and so it makes sense that Catherine would now have control over it. Further investigation reveals that Catherine was strong-armed into giving Berman the real estate by his mafia friend Mickey Nice, but she still retained the mineral rights. (laughs) Get ready for this. You can sell off your land and still have the rights to all the oil and natural gas burbling underneath. Yeah, that is a real thing, like mineral rights. Yeah, so that is what some people are after, including Madeline Stowe. She plays Bodine's widow, and she partners with an oil tycoon played by Richard Farnsworth to see if they can't drill underneath the suburbia that Berman controls. All those tract houses that are being bought up by GIs coming home from World War II. So even if that means setting off fracking explosive earthquakes that could kill those families, 
Madeline Stowe's going to do it and sleep with Giddies in the process. And our hero detective eventually proves that Berman is guilty of murder when he finds the furniture used to smuggle the gun into that hotel room. But the director ultimately takes pity on his client when he learns he has prostate cancer and thus presents a doctored version of the audio tape in court that gets Berman off. The big twist of the movie comes when Giddies realizes that Berman's wife is Catherine Mulray, which shouldn't really have been that hard to figure out. No, I figured it out the first time she showed up. <laughs> yeah, the moment she's announced as Kitty, Kitty, Catherine, that's a nickname for Catherine. Yeah, it shouldn't have been that hard to figure out since she's age-appropriate blonde, played by Meg Tilly, and she didn't even bother to change her name. So Catherine cheated with Bodine because Berman stopped sleeping with her, and he never told her about the prostate cancer, so she assumed it was neglect. But in the end, Catherine is ready to sleep with Giddies, too, after Berman intentionally kills himself in an explosion that wipes away the real estate development. Giddies realizes that it's probably a little creepy to sleep with the sister-daughter of his last girlfriend, and so... It's not his last girlfriend, he's engaged. Yes, he goes off to find the woman that he was engaged with at the start of the film as credits roll. If I had some problems following certain threads in Chinatown... Good luck! <laughs> the two Jakes definitely is a little naughty. But we're going to start off... I Again, I couldn't remember the trailers I saw for this movie in the 90s. I came in thinking this might be a tete-a-tete between two guys named Jake, or a case of mistaken identity, or even impersonation. There are these two Jakes. What is the whole thing with two Jakes? First scene! Here's Harvey Keitel. Hey, my name's Jake, too. That's the end of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, before I turn this on, I'm like, okay, is this going to be a prequel about what happened in Chinatown? We'll get that story. Or is it going to be, like, a more direct sequel, like, we're showing the aftermath of that first. Like, he's going to go rescue Catherine from Noah Cross. Like, I thought that's where they're going. No. Harvey Cartel, the other Jake, Jake, too, as I wrote down in my notes. I guess he's narrating this surveillance tape, and he's like, and it's 1948. I'm like, oh, they said that because we need to know what year it is. And that's a way to get that out there because even the other characters call him out for, you don't need to say the year, that's silly. Well, you're getting a little ahead of yourself. The one thing I want to point out is that this movie begins not with that scene, but with voiceover. And this is a totally different approach. You figure if you were doing a direct sequel, you would want it stylistically to look and sound and feel like Chinatown. Yes, I realize that it has been 16 years and that Hollywood movies themselves don't look and feel like they did in 1974, but I would have thought Jack Nicholson would have tried his hardest. And the fact that they start here with him doing some really bad voiceover work, I don't know whether that's Robert Town or the studio saying this movie makes no sense, you got to put voiceover to explain it, but it's kind of a downer to realize you know it's not going to be the same experience from the first seconds. I felt like this voiceover was going back to the noir conventions. Sure. Old noir would have tons of voiceover. But yes, it does also serve to paste together sections of this plot that don't quite connect. Yeah, it is going back to those noir conventions of bad narration like Blade Runner. And want to point out, Polanski was dead set against doing conventions of 40s film. I want to be in the 1940s. I don't want to emulate movies that anybody could watch. It was a different aesthetic entirely. And worth pointing out that Polanski said he admired Robert Town as a researcher, as a man that could write dialogue, but he said he just wasn't very good at visuals. I put in all the visuals that there are in Chinatown, 
to make it more cinematic. Boy, you're missing that here. You're getting voiceover, and then you're getting lots of talky scenes of people in rooms and suits from guys and dolls. And what is it they're trying to do with Jake 2, Jake Berman, Harvey Keitel here? They're having him rehearse what he's going to say when he busts in on his wife sleeping with his business partner. But A, he's got proof of this. I mean, it sounds like you could get photos, you could get audio. He doesn't need to bust into the room. And B, even if he does bust into the room, he doesn't need to rehearse what he's going to say in order for it all to be on tape. I don't know exactly what they're accomplishing by that. I think you guys are overthinking this, that if we have an audio tape that establishes the exact time and date of this, that's the kind of proof that holds up in court. So yes, he's making the mistake of providing too much information. And yeah, Jake Giddis is like, "Mm, you don't need to say all of that. But I find this scene funny because it actually mirrors the first scene in Chinatown in the same way that Curly is moaning and groaning about seeing his wife in the bushes. We see... Jake, too, moaning and groaning. The difference is he's a bad actor. He's trying to pretend like he's going to be outraged when, in fact, all of this is premeditated. He knows very well his wife's going to be here and he can't wait to bust her because, it again, that is the real question of the movie. What does he hope to gain by exposing this affair? Yeah, exactly. You're saying he's got to rehearse the speech so they have a recording of it. Why? Is he going to take her to court like they need this for divorce hearings? Well, again, what we'll find out eventually is that this Catherine is the Catherine that holds the mineral rights and what have you. Yes, this is how he's going to be able to get the rest of the land from her. I get so confused through this film. It is so convoluted. Like, does he know about the mineral rights? Like, he didn't know about Mickey stealing the land. I don't know what he knows and what he doesn't know. Why would he want the mineral rights when he doesn't think there's any oil under there? And his motivation for this entire movie is to make sure his wife, who cheated on him, is well set up after his death from cancer. So that doesn't make any sense. Yes, let's just go out and call out the fact that Robert Town never finished the script. That they went into production, like they did in Chinatown, with things not nailed down. And Polanski was always changing things and adding things. And if you believe him, making things visual. And Robert Town, because he wasn't directing this movie, it's presumed that he was angry and was not giving them the rewrites they were asking for. When I talk about Jack Nicholson waiting by the fax machine for the pages that never came, I think that these are the pages that would have clarified the storyline. This movie has all kinds of ideas that... Sometimes the actors made up on the spot because they didn't have a script to work from that was complete. Great way to make a film. I have a question because, again, L.A. native. We got earthquakes here. I've been through a couple big ones. I know, like, supposedly fracking might do this kind of stuff, but is there a history of this in L.A.? I don't even know about this, where there is these tremors going around all the time. This feels totally made up for the film. That was huge, though, in the media in 90 to 92, that... LA, every 20 minutes, there was going to be an earthquake. I think there was like one earthquake and every single movie and TV show just jumped upon it as a plot line for a while. Yeah, I mean, there was the Whittier one in 87 that was pretty big. There would be a Northridge one, but that came after this film. And it's not like you have tremors, you have aftershocks, but I don't know. This just didn't feel as real as all that talk about water that I didn't 100% understand, but I know is rooted in L.A. history. This just seems 
kind of far-fetched. Yes. All right. So hold on to that thought. So if the first movie was about water and the ways that people can manipulate that to hurt other people, the fact that this is earthquakes, earth, that's the element they want to play with here. Yes, I think California in general rightfully has a reputation for having earthquakes and tremors, but I think we are to think of this as the results of fracking and drilling, which was not a thing in this time. No. They're ahead of that curve by telling the audience that there's some kind of drilling going on. And what's most bizarre about all of this is that this earthquake is happening in Giddy's office, which is nowhere near... Nowhere near the valley! (laughs) ...where the explosive combination of natural gas and oil would create these, I don't know what you want to call them, these gas quakes. Well, I think fracking was probably of mass knowledge after this movie came out. Again, I think they're just saying California earthquakes. Yeah, fracking wouldn't be a thing for 10 more years. Yeah, so I know they're going to claim that drilling may have hit a fault line or something, but the fact that Jake's having earthquakes at his office, I think they're just saying California's rumbly. No, 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 no. These are because of the oil underneath. I mean, that is a theme of this, that there's this giant reservoir. It doesn't have any water, but it has this giant reservoir of oil underneath, a desert with this oil reservoir. I mean, I think that's a fascinating idea, and I can see why Town would want to play with it. And I think he probably did the research to know about fracking before any of us did. That's what I'm giving him credit for. He knew that this was a potential, but as to the mechanics and how it will be playing out in the plot, Yes, I will give you. Underdefined and ultimately meaningless. Yeah, but that makes perfect sense at the housing development. It doesn't explain why Jake's office would have so many earthquakes. No. Correct. And they're doing little callbacks here. Like, Kitty mentions the fact that he wants to go to the Wilshire Country Club to play golf. And the Jew, of course, knows that he's lucky to join because he's excluded. Harvey Keitel, that's one of the differences between the two Jakes is that he's experiencing anti-Semitism. And we see Giddies in the adjoining room playing golf into a cup as the affair goes down. And this is where I really want to hone in on how important a director is. You really want to be able to establish all the elements that are important so that even though you might not be following the plot entirely, you know what's going on in the scene. You know what's happening. And I don't think they had enough coverage in this movie I don't think Jack Nicholson knew how to film these scenes. And all of a sudden, just having people run into rooms and we hear audio recording about furniture movers and what, like, (laughs) you would not be able to know all the things they're trying to set up in this opening sting at the hotel. But I think that's by design. I think we're supposed to suss that out by hearing that recording 50 times over the next two hours. You would want to know that his assistants are there taking pictures and audio recording. This is cut up so much, you really don't understand that before the gun's already going off. Yeah, it's very quick, and I feel like with a mystery, again, you want to show one thing and then slowly deconstruct that and show why that impression was wrong as you find more clues. Yeah, an excellent example would be Memento revisiting certain things so that you did understand things you didn't before. But yeah, when they're pulling out chairs later on, I'm like, I guess there was something about furniture being delivered. (laughs) Yeah, it's garbage the way that it comes in here. And again, who knows what the original plot was and what they made up on the spot. Because there is stuff here that's improvised or that Nicholson just had to fill in the gaps, like caulk. I love after the shooting, like Escobar shows up 
But again, this is 10 years later. Everyone apparently fought in World War II. They look much too old to have gone and fought in the war. But then they immediately <laughs> got the same jobs back. Jack Nicholson, he's a PI again. Escobar's a lieutenant again. It just feels very clumsy. No, he's got a promotion to captain. Oh, he's a captain now. Okay. Now, can we talk about something unkind? Nicholson. Yes. Time has passed, right? Yeah. <laughs> to go from watching Chinatown and watching him, what, he's almost 40 years old in that movie, to now watching him comfortably heading towards 60, they should have gotten Harrison Ford for this, right? He cannot convincingly play the man that he was with a 10-year gap. I'm not buying it. He looks really bad here, overweight, the lines in his face, and just the performance. I don't believe that he's committed to being the Giddies of the 1974 movie. He's too busy worrying about the directing job to do the work as the actor. What I read is the exact opposite. He was so committed to this, he gained weight for the role. He wanted his older Jake to be, quote, settled in and overly comfortable. <laughs> okay. You know, he was a fat joker. He's a fat Giddies. <laughs> the man was fat. And that's what it was. And he didn't try to change. And it is what it is. And yes, you could write it into the character. He's so heartbroken over having to revisit the tragedies of Chinatown that he was not the same man. You could play it that way, but I'm just going to put it out there. Nicholson's bad in this film. As good as he was in Chinatown, he is bad in this movie. I'll argue against that. I think he's fine in this movie. He was great in Chinatown. He's fine here. He's fine to bad for me. Like, <laughs> at his best, he is fine in this film. Again, the confusion. Is Jake Getty's just the worst private eye ever? Like, is this what every sequel would be? Like, someone gets him on a false pretense? Does he not vet anyone? Did he learn nothing from Evelyn Mulray? It just feels like he gets duped every time now. Mm-hmm. And that made more sense in the 70s for some reason, because it was a cynical time where the little guy would end up on the, you know, short end of the stick. But did he not learn anything from that? Like, characters should learn something and change. I agree. Like, to try and be as cynical in 1990 with the glossy 80s movies, that's a hard trick to pull. I don't know how you retain the spirit of that film. So much has changed, and you don't have Polanski directing this. And Nicholson himself is a different actor by this point. So I just, it's a different beast. It's probably good it's not called Chinatown 2, because there is very little about this that's bringing me back to Chinatown. Maybe because I watch these in close proximity, and because the plots will end up going back to the things that happened in Chinatown, I'm not seeing the car wreck you're seeing, Stuart. I'm definitely noticing maybe it's gone a little bit driving on the shoulder, and it's one tire maybe getting ready to come off with the voiceover. But I'm liking Harvey Keitel in this. I'm liking him playing off Jack Nicholson in this. What are you talking about? Name one scene where they're good together. I like the opening scene with the two of them prepping and then Jack Nicholson realizing they're wearing the same shoes and things. I thought that was rather clever. Yeah, I'll give you the first scene. I did like the first scene. You're right. I had hope that they were doing the curly thing and then all of a sudden we're in this confusing thing. Here's the real problem is that I think that they tell me that Giddies is in on this. Because he goes barging in there, the way he takes the gun away from Berman and the performance he's giving, I think that he knew the guy was going to kill the other guy. So it's a real surprise to me three scenes later 
when we're supposed to think that he feels betrayed, that he had no idea there was a gun in there, that he might have been set up because Berman actually now has an excuse to kill his partner and inherit a lot of money for it, rather than say that this is a crime of passion. It's just confusion upon confusion. Like, they're going to introduce a lot of characters as Berman gets arrested, and now we have Loach, who's an investigating officer. I don't know. He pisses his pants later. I guess that's why he's in this film. He's important because he's the son of the man that shot Evelyn. Yeah, I got that. It just felt like they threw that in there because this is a Chinatown sequel. I don't know how important that really is. There's Weinberger. There's just all these characters. Like, throughout this film, I'm like, okay, we're at the hour mark. Stop adding characters. No, more characters are coming. It does feel like they're just improvising. I don't know. We need some more people for this scene. Bring someone in. But Chinatown was like that, too. The difference is that you love every character. They had such great detail work. And they ultimately ended up fitting in to the feel and theme of the movie. Whereas here, yes, I feel like these actors are not well-directed, don't understand the movie that they're in. And sometimes this movie looks more like the sex farce man trouble that Nicholson would make afterwards than the (laughs) Chinatown movie. I mean, it's all about a middle-aged man fending off hot women that are throwing themselves at him. I did wonder, you know, body heat had come out, basic instinct hadn't come. You know, there was that whole thing in the 80s, like sexy noir. And I, this film is so lewd at times. We'll talk about that Lillian sex scene, but like, I guess that was the style of the time. So they're going to talk like that and just do the things they do. I mean, I don't know that Jack Nicholson has a style. I do know that there's an insert shot of him putting his hands down Madeline Stowe's panties. And if that's hot for anyone, I won't take that away from you. But I will say that this movie feels like they were fumbling in the editing room to even find a tone. And that sometimes, occasionally, it does feel like those sex thrillers. But calling this erotic would be very misleading. Oh, no, no. It's erotic in a way that is not erotic, but it feels like they are going for that. Sometimes. So you guys didn't find any interest in the mystery, which I did, of this opening. Was it premeditated murder? Was... Berman doing this all just to kill his business partner and steal the business, and the fact that this could all blow back on Giddy's if it turns out that he's not doing it premeditated. I enjoy kind of the suspense of that, and I enjoy the mystery that unfolds. I mean, I don't think it's conceptually a bad story. You gotta have a script, though, so you know how to tell it, but It also just feels too close to Chinatown. It feels like they're hitting a lot of those same beats. Yeah, it's a sequel. Yeah, but, like, I'm picking up every clue this time. Like, when they mishear something, or there's a little sign in the background for redheads only. I'm like, okay, this is all obvious. I feel like, I don't know if you know the Psylocke Fox comic, but it's like this detective comic for kids where the detective fox, like, finds some clue and you gotta pick up on it. Like, it feels very amateur to me. Here's what I would say. Yes, they are very much doing what they did in Chinatown in the same way that a fake Evelyn Mulray got Giddy's goat and had him invest in a mystery because he felt like his reputation had been hurt by participating. That's a smart way to bring us back into the Chinatown vibe if it felt like Chinatown. But all I would say is that Harvey Keitel is equally lame in this movie. He's not a good actor here. I don't care about his Berman. The mystery is edited around. I mean, I almost feel like the people in the editing room know it's not working either, which is why they cut it to confusion. They can't let scenes play out because the chemistry is off. I don't know if Dustin Hoffman 
and Jack Nicholson would have worked any better. Certainly back in the prime in the 70s, I think it would have. I like the setup. I guess what I'm saying, Arnie, is yes, there's something about this idea that I feel like would be a good continuation, but everything that I'm seeing is miscalculation. Drastic miscalculation in some respects. Like Madeline Stowe, you gotta admit, when we have her introduced tearing up the place, and then later she's gonna be ODing on pills, and then later she's gonna be throwing herself at him and working with some oil tycoon, none of that really makes any sense. That doesn't track. You can tell she doesn't know what she's doing, and she's a fine actress in other movies, so I know that this is a problem with having no script and having no director. It was weird that she comes in so hot for Gettys, and then kind of just disappears from the film. I mean, we have to understand, she's a widow. She's newly widowed Mm -hmm. and supposed to be upset that her husband was cheating on her. She seems far too happy for all of that. She seems like a girl out at a nightclub, the way she plays Mm. her scenes. I mean, the first scene, she's literally destroying Giddy's office and saying that this is all his fault. What you're talking about is that, yes, she's introduced destroying things and that Giddy's literally has to punch her unconscious in order to get her out of his office. I laughed out loud at that because it was, you know, the accidental, oh, she walked into my fist. Yeah, I rewound it because I'm like, was that on purpose? Or I'm like, okay, it was on purpose for sure. (laughs) But then her assistants take her home and she ODs on pills. And the assistants are still there, but Giddy's has to run over and pump her stomach. Yeah, he gets like a phone call and just knows to go over there or something. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's clear no one knows what's going on. Because as you say, Arnie, then she comes back being the friendly, untraumatized self. That is like, again, it's supposed to be funny that, you know, his hand's going down her pants. He's ordering her to, you know, ass up in the air on all fours and all of this. It's suddenly feeling like some kind of sex comedy. Plus, he has a fiancé named Linda that we've seen from the back of her head on phone calls with him to the point that I wondered if we were ever going to see her, if she was just going to be like Diane from Twin Peaks. But I couldn't figure out why Gettys was so willing to cheat on his fiancé. Well, he doesn't love her. I mean, I think that's evident. He's stringing her along. This woman's always calling, saying, I'll meet you at the restaurant. The secretary lays out the tux. But when push comes to shove, he's going to sleep in the office, cradling the framed photo that looks like a headshot. It doesn't look like Evelyn Mulray. Yes. It looks like Faye Dunaway's <laughs> headshot that he just stuck in a picture frame, and he's sleeping with it. So, like, they're trying to tell us in very clumsy ways that he's still hung up on Evelyn, even though he's engaged to some inferior blonde who's <laughs> kind of a nag. My question with Lillian... Her husband dies. Supposedly, she's not going to get the $6 million for his half of the land. They make her an offer, and her lawyer says no. Like, was she in on something to get mineral rights or something? Like, what is her role here? What does she want out of this? Why does your lawyer tell her not to take the $6 million? Here's all I can tell you. <laughs> During the pill scene, Giddies goes down to the porch, and some lawyer comes out there and says that he basically thinks that Giddies should give up the tape, and thus let his client go down for the crime. That it's not fair that Lillian has been cut out, that Berman has won over all the housing development, and he wants Giddies to collude with him. And so this is a movie that's all about matches and cigarettes and what have you, but he offers a light, and we see that he is connected to this 
oil company. And later, when she's on all fours, she too has a matchbook that's connected to the oil company. Is that what that was? I was so confused. It zooms in like on a lighter or something. Like, what is that? (laughs) Because they all have the same lighter, they're all colluding for the drilling, what I would refer to as the whip-stocking subplot in which we are to find out that a company that claims they're going out to sea to drill for oil is actually drilling underneath the suburbs, although we never see evidence of it. Yeah, something introduced very late in the film, like Raleigh, another new character just showing up, confusing me. Yeah, there are a lot of characters in and out, but there were in Chinatown. I didn't hear these complaints. Because that was better written. Yeah, because it was well calibrated. Watch the mastery of that. Let's put it side by side. If you're telling me they're the same thing, I'm going to have your eyes checked. (laughs) There's one that's clearly out of focus. It's the same thing. It's not the same quality, but it is the same thing. I agree. Right. It's the same writer, and he's working with a different director who, again, I find myself missing Polanski. I do feel like Polanski probably did make things more visual, did have clever ways of transitioning, did find the knife cut that made you excited. Here, the closest they come to that is that poor Giddies is going to trot his fat ass out there to the mobile homes and (laughs) light a cigarette on top of a well... What is that? (laughs) He like flips around, which is hilarious. And then like, I don't know, there's some image. I guess that's Catherine's face or something spinning around in his vision. I don't know. Yeah, he gets some flashbacks to the first film. I couldn't tell. Maybe you guys could. Was that actual footage from the first film or did they have to refilm this stuff with a different actor for rights reasons? Because I couldn't quite see faces. Let me just be clear. There is definitely edited in footage from Chinatown. And it looks very different than the footage that's also here. That's this movie. Okay. But that footage mostly was the fact that he was looking at the old signs. You know, there was that misspelled sign that said no tree passing. And you are to understand that this tract home suburbia is built atop the orange groves that Cross took. That this is the same place. And they try to overemphasize that by interspersing those flashbacks to make you go, oh, okay, that sign was from that time, and now they're not Orange Groves, they're a new suburb, because L.A. is expanding. Yeah, I I assume that was going on. I wrote land from previous film, question mark, but yeah, I definitely got that later on, that this is that land that they were all fighting over. But then, what you're talking about, the spinning around, so Nicholson (laughs) is on a well that is also a gas leak, let's just call it what it is, Lights a cigarette. Natural gas, not gasoline gas, even though we're later going to be told there's oil under their houses. Which is ironic because about 10 years ago, here in the valley, there is a big natural gas reserve that got a leak and like people had to evacuate their homes because they couldn't take the smell. But yeah, they're telling us this is gasoline, like these are the fumes rising up? No, I think it's natural gas. I think it's both. Okay. It's natural gas. Yeah. But he blows, he lands... And just like in the first movie where he woke up and saw Faye Dunaway, he wakes up and sees Catherine, although he doesn't know it yet. Yeah, I knew it right here. This is Catherine. Yeah, she's introduced as Berman's, Harvey Keitel's wife. But I would think that anybody would know that this is the long-lost incest victim. Meg Tilly, sister of Jennifer, was in her heyday the star of Agnes of God, which is a movie, I don't want to spoil all the plots, but it is a movie that has a similar rape scenario that... She believes she's been raped by God. I'll just put it that way. And so to have her here in this movie almost telegraphs 
that she's going to have this weird incest background. Again, the fact that she's introduced as Kitty, and they're already talking about Catherine, I'm like, okay. Now, I think what's supposed to throw us is, but this one's a strawberry blonde, and the other one was a pure blonde. (laughs) Unless you see that for redheads only sign on the hair dye place. Not yet. Again, she's full blonde in this scene, and then she goes for that much later in the film. In a scene that comes out of nowhere, where characters are commenting on people coming in and out of a Beverly Hills salon. Yet they comment on a woman going in, so I'm like, oh, they're going to talk to that woman. No, they're talking to Catherine. Like, it is so confusing. (laughs) Yeah, clearly whole storylines are just gone here. But yes, she seems to be trying to disguise her blondness at some point by becoming a redhead. As if to throw Giddy's off the trail. He should be better than this. I'm judging him. Last time, it was a tragedy <laughs> that he couldn't foresee the mystery. This is a tragedy now that he's too stupid <laughs> to figure what's going on. That's as plain as the nose on his face. And it's not even cut. It has a scar, though. They kept that continuity. What's so strange to me is, okay, you're reintroducing Catherine. I figure we're going to find out what happened between the films. And we even have... Jake, go see Khan again, and we just find out that Catherine was a horticulturist? Like, she grew flowers, apparently. No, he grows the flowers for her. She likes these poppies. She burns the seeds? (laughs) I mean, I just took it that he worked for her still. And so this does beg a huge question. What happened between being grabbed and hauled off in the middle of the night and now? Obviously, John Huston was old. Noah Cross probably died, gave her the land. But the fact that they don't address that at all. Yeah. How many kids does she have? How many sister daughters does she have? They do mention that she got the land from her dad. That is the only tie they make back to that. And you never know, maybe he didn't molest her. He definitely, like, they set that up. That is who he is. Then you've hurt the original movie if he didn't, because that was the horror of it. And also worth pointing out, Faye Dunaway is back for a needless voiceover cameo. (laughs) We find out that Giddy's had a love letter that she must have written as she was getting in the packer to be shot. Yeah, when was that written? (laughs) I think it was written while she was packing up at James Wong's house. Possibly. I'll give him that maybe she wasn't going to see him again, but yeesh. This is where I want to just cite how bad Nicholson is. Look at him fake crying in this scene. Compare that with the horror on his face when he looks at Evelyn with the shot through her eye, and this moment reading the letter, and you know you don't have the movie. You know you don't have the character. You know you can't bring the past back. The crying scene was a little on the painful side. I mean, again, he's just not invested. What you might say is fine is that he's giving some kind of Jack Nicholson performance, and you like Jack Nicholson, but this is not Gettys. This is not that character. It's not Joker. It's not... Jack from The Shining. He's definitely channeling some of what he gave in Chinatown. He's reaching none of it. Zero. I would say his complete performance start to finish is goose eggs. He doesn't have one good scene. If he did somehow manage to scrape together an Oscar nomination, I'm not sure what clip they would play to try and say he gave the best performance of the year. I'm not saying best performance of the year worthy. I'm just saying... I feel like it's Geddes, not Nicholson being Nicholson. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it is not in any way evoking the tragedy of that character. And that is a shame because they're soaking in it. They're trying to having him go from scene to scene and all these crazy characters popping up around him. The whole second act is really about who's going to get the tape. It's not even a tape. I 
did look this up because I'm like, what the hell are they using? What is this? It's a little cylinder canister. It's a wire recording. Apparently, tape was too expensive back then, like cassettes. And so you were able to do audio recordings on wires. And so it's this weird antenna-looking slinky ball that they've recorded on. (laughs) Yeah, it's a cartridge like they stick into a machine and it spins around weird, yeah. That's kind of fun. I like that detail. But you're right. They keep calling it a wire. I call it a tape just because I grew up in that era. And so basically the MacGuffin is who's going to get this wire. We have lots of scenes of just random people coming through the window trying to steal it. Yeah. Mickey and Liberty showing up with a grenade. Yeah. That's really a smoke bomb. First of all, I love Liberty. That guy is huge. And I had to look him up to see what else he might have done. It looks like he might be a driver on films. And, like, sometimes they look at the driver and say, we need a big guy to not act. So you get to come on screen, too. I mean, they had Jack Nicholson to do that role of a big guy not acting. But the grenade scene was funny to me that I guess I'm used to watching action films. They give Gettys a grenade and say, you better put it in that safe. I'm thinking... You just throw it out the window, or you throw it at Liberty, <laughs> you shove it down Liberty's pants, or just say, I'm going to drop this grenade and we're all going to die. You know, there's got to be something more than the scramble Jack Nicholson does under his desk to try to get that grenade to go in the safe. My assumption is Mickey is working for or with Berman to destroy this tape, because I guess they feel like it would incriminate Berman. So did Berman send Mickey to go blow this thing up, which would tell me that he is guilty? Yes, correct. Okay. The way I understand it is, every time we see Eli Wallach, the lawyer, or every time we see Mickey, their aim is to suppress. They know that if they listen to the tape, that the court is going to say, I don't hear. And again, nothing about this tape is conclusive. Yeah. (laughs) So that's what's frustrating. People are acting like it's a smoking gun, or will reveal who shot the smoking gun. But it really doesn't. It doesn't clear Berman, but it doesn't show that Bodine shot first. And so they want it suppressed for that reason, or blown up, or whatever. And Giddies won't get on board because he's trying to figure out another message on the tape. That couple, while, again, bizarre scene not established, but that couple, while they were in bed, talked about Catherine Mulray. Yeah, I didn't understand this. Like, why are they all of a sudden saying Catherine Mulray? Like, Gettys will play this tape for Lillian, which, look, as bad as Nicholson is, when she's like, no, no, like, can't take listening to her husband get murdered on this tape. It is so bad. (laughs) Oh, God, that is awful. With the tape talking about Catherine Mulray, I understand that Gettys may not immediately think that his client's wife is Catherine Mulray, but are we supposed to think that Mark Bodine was sleeping with Kitty and didn't know she was Catherine Mulray? No, no. Okay. He was sleeping with her with the idea that he was going to eventually, and I don't know what was taking him so long, blackmail her into saying, I know that you are an incest baby from the Cross family, and I'm going to blow your cover. That's what they were going to do. And if you don't want that coming out, you'll give me the mineral rights. Okay, because what he was saying is, you know what would really make him mad, and by him meaning Jake Berman. That's what she said on the tape. That's the female voice, not the male voice. 
she was mad enough at her husband to think that she could, without revealing that she was Catherine Mulray, reveal that he took Catherine Mulray's land unfairly because he doesn't sleep with her anymore. I'm very confused. Yeah, welcome to the club <laughs> yeah. party. This is how I felt the whole time watching this in a very different way than I'm confused when I watch Chinatown. Like, there I feel like there's a story it's just out of grasp, maybe. Right. But this, like, I give up halfway through this film. But they do these things like whips and stockings, and of course, Lillian's gonna, oh, this kinky stuff going on. I'm like, no, okay, that's like the glass is being destroyed by the water, where it's really grass. Bad for glass, yeah. So, like, I know all the tricks they're doing, but, like, it's so obvious how they're coming out, too. Like, they're going to call out the whips and stocking and have a whole little line about it. I feel like in Chinatown, maybe one of the smart things about it is, like, Apple Corps. Like, they never go, oh, Apple Corps, Apple Corps. Like, you just put that together. Here, I feel like they got to really punctuate what the clues are. Well, they got to punctuate them because the story makes no sense. And so that they're eventually trying to say, do you even follow what's going on? Just to try and connect, because I don't know if I can. What we are hearing is that Catherine moaning on the tape and they say something about whip stocking. That means that they know something about the oil drilling. Because whip stocking, we will find out, is a way of leading the drill bit closer to the oil. Don't know much more than that. And we find that out from Bob the Goon from Batman. (laughs) Yes. In the meantime, Lillian, maybe intentionally to throw Giddies off the trail... Or maybe because she just assumes it's S&M slang is having a conniption about whips and stockings rather than whip stocking. Since she's in bed with the Raleigh Petroleum Company, I have to believe she knows exactly what whip stocking is and just doesn't want Giddies to find out that that's happening. Good news, no one will ever understand that because this movie's incomplete. (laughs) I don't even know why they dropped that clue in this. Yeah, what comes of that? I notice we'll see whip stocking on a beam or something later on, but I don't know if that really led to anything. Yeah, well, we have this character, Tyrone Oatley, who, yes, Arnie has already correctly identified as being in Jack Nicholson's previous movie, Batman. He was Bob the Goon, had his own action figure. (laughs) Here, he is some kind of mineralogist who gives tours of the La Brea tar pits to old ladies (laughs) and wants to give proof about this whip stocking to Giddies at a gay bar. This was rather progressive for 1948 or 1990. Not really. I mean, Police Academy had already come out with the Blue Oyster. Yeah, but that was as a joke. This is taking it seriously. This is a joke, too. Like, they're going to try to frame him as, like, feeling a cop up. Well, no, I mean, this is true to form. Let's just remind people of the times. If you were caught in a gay bar, you could go to jail. You could have your lose your job, your house. You're everything. It would be a devastating scandal to be identified that way. So why Oatley wants to meet there? A little bit puzzling, but I appreciate the fact that they wanted to bring, again, what did I love about Chinatown? That it showed you the underbelly of LA. That showed you the things that are not on the tourist map. And so to go to a gay bar, and what did that look like in 1948? And yes, many of them were mob-owned because no legitimate establishment No rightful owner would allow such behavior to be going on. The fact that Mickey Nice is there kind of makes sense. Yeah, I like that detail. They're like, why are you here, Mickey? He's like, I own the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, this could all work in the context of a much better organized storyline. But because of the way that this has been put together and so many confusing elements that will never have a loop tied, 
It is just bizarre that Giddies is dragged into the back of the kitchen to be tortured by an ice pick and then saved by a police raid. Tom Waits, of all people, and Loesch. Yeah, I couldn't believe Tom Waits showed up in this. But they think they have him on the gay charge, which, again, that is a, something that would hurt him if it were to come out. But how they will introduce that into the court, it doesn't fly. And the fact that Giddies makes Loesch suck his pistol until he pisses himself, I don't know what to take from that. Yeah, if this was a movie about, again, Jake trying to save Catherine soon after the events of that last one, I don't know, maybe this would make sense that, oh, here's someone related to the person who shot his love and he wants to get revenge, but this just gets lost. Loach, I think this is the last time we see him. Maybe he shows up later. I don't know. There's so many characters. I think he's in the trial. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's in the trial at the end, but I just, I don't know what this character is supposed to be doing here. I'd, I'd write him out, but I guess they had no script, so they couldn't. And again, they want to call back to the fact that this is the man or the son of the man. Again, that's confusing. Why can't it just be the man? But the son of the man that shot Evelyn, that's the reason in part why Giddies is losing his shit and making him suck a gun, but it just doesn't play well. It just doesn't make sense. He's not the man that killed Evelyn. It doesn't. I mean, they probably couldn't make it fly a charge that he fondled a vice officer in a gay club, but they could probably make it fly that he assaulted an officer with a deadly weapon. Yeah, the fact that he gets off on bail and continues on is part of this movie's lackadaisical attitude towards logic. And so let's try and follow the rest of the plot as best we can, which is about whether Berman did it or not. You're right, Arnie, that's maybe the hook that is the deepest, if not the Catherine thing, which most people should have figured out by now. We have the assistants coming up with documents that say that Berman got the land from Mickey Nice, and he got it from Catherine Mulray on the same day two years ago. That looks like extortion, right? You used your mafia muscle to get this poor woman to give up her Orange Grove lands, and then you immediately sign it over to Berman. He goes to the notary that did all of this, and we have another callback. The man that played the clerk in City Hall in the first movie now has his jaw wired shut and is doing a comic bit here. Didn't realize it was the same guy. Me either. I recognized him right away. I was just like, oh, I bet that's the same guy. I was just confused because here's another new character. We're like halfway through this film. So yeah, I'm just trying to figure things out. I don't even have time to recognize faces. I was trying to figure out, was the guy on a diet and had his jaw wired shut? (laughs) Or what was going on with that? Oh, somebody broke his jaw. His new secretary of three weeks is going to spill everything. Yeah, exactly. Bodine came in there and asked about it, and he told, and then Mickey Nice presumably went in there, or maybe it was that other guy, Liberty, and broke his jaw for talking. And so then this is about the time where Giddies realizes, he listens to the tape again, he hears Walsh talk something about guys from Bay City Linen, and then mega jump, all of a sudden he's driving up in a Bay City Linen truck to Catherine's stable, and saying, here's the furniture that got smuggled in with a custom-made holder for the pistol. Yeah, I figured this was like Godfather, where they put the gun in the toilet, and then Al Pacino goes and retrieves it. Like, they delivered a chair with the gun already hidden in this compartment, but they still have that? They didn't destroy the evidence? Like, it's not weird to have furniture delivered to a hotel? You used your own business to deliver a gun chair. I think that's enough. Right, really stupid there. And again, the fact that, like, the gun was taken earlier by Giddies. Again, if you watch that scene, like, he got a handkerchief and took it. So I thought he was in on it. I thought he hid that from the cops. 
the fact that it's here. Is it the same gun? We were told it was Bodine's gun that was registered in his name. So as they're trying to make things more clear, it just gets more muddier. And then God help us, Jake and Jake go golfing. And suddenly I'm in the sequel to Caddyshack. (laughs) (laughs) What happens here? Jake 2, Berman says, you're going to give me that wire by the end of this game or I'm going to kill you. And then he just faints. (laughs) So Jake gets away. It's just luck. He says, I'm going to demonstrate my one-legged golfer trick. Like he's just trying to be funny because Harvey Keitel is so funny in this movie (laughs) and goes down on one leg and then because he's dying of prostate cancer, collapses. Let's just be clear. Jack Nicholson likes to golf a lot. Oh, I totally took this. They did all 18 holes this day and filmed this one little scene. This was a paid (laughs) golf trip. Yeah. It's either that or we're going to the Lakers game, right? 100%. (laughs) Yes. Jack Nicholson's way of directing is saying, I'm doing this for me and we will just make giddies like it too. But garbage scene. What is going on? Is it funny? Is it revealing? What am I supposed to be learning? Yeah, what's the scene after this? All of a sudden, he's breaking into something to get x-rays. I don't know what's going on anymore. I don't know why he's there, how he knew to go there, why he's getting x-rays. The only way I figured this one out is I looked (laughs) up who this actress was that's sleeping in front of the TV watching an Ajax commercial from old style, and she is Bourbon's doctor. He broke into the doctor's home? Yes. Doctors, of course, when they're researching about their patients, take cancer cells home to their microscopes, and then private investigators can look into those microscopes and see the (laughs) cancer cells and go, aha, that's what's going on, as they grab the x-rays. I think this is where I gave up. I'm just like, I don't know anymore what's happening. I'll agree that around this point, I was starting to lose it. Yeah, you're watching this late at night, too, so I don't know why you don't just go ahead and close them eyes because like you're not rewarded for trying (laughs) but i am trying to understand what this movie's telling me and it's really stupid again think about what he said in the last movie sometimes you're better not knowing yeah just let this movie roll off you because if you (laughs) actually know how this is coming together it's as clumsy as a matlock episode i mean once we get to this courtroom scene this is as bad as a bastardization of court as i've ever seen the fact that this is allowed to fly Yeah, I agree. And I usually like court scenes in movies. And this one, oh boy. Yeah, all of them are just playing the coitus groans. And I don't know, somehow it's doctored or something. I can't tell the difference between the previous recording. Yeah, I figured he edited it. Yeah, he edited it somehow. Yeah, in what way does it now make Berman look innocent? He will get off from this. And you have Lillian, like, yelling, he changed it, he changed it, like... Right. Would the judge not want to hear about this? Hear from her to see what she heard? I feel like they're really not trying. And this is the point when all of a sudden the prosecution is introducing the gay charge against Nicholson? I'm just like, wait, what? (laughs) I think they were doing that to impeach him as a witness? Yes! I mean, again, like, this is not court. At any given moment or time, in any place in history... I don't know what you'd call this, but this is not a court of law. And again, it really does feel like a farce, like a sex farce. Again, Nicholson made a few of these. Sometimes, what was that? Something's got to give or something like that later. Mm -hmm. Man Trouble with Ellen Barkin. This just feels like he wanted to be his dirty little self and have people laugh at him being Jack Nicholson. And where is Chinatown? Where is the darkness of the bureaucracies. I mean, I just, I'm crushed by how bad this has gotten. 
Yeah, this time it's about Jake pulling one over on everyone. Like, he didn't want Catherine exposed. He didn't want that dug up. So he's doing everything he can to protect Berman, because if he gets exposed, then Catherine gets exposed. Yeah. I guess you're right. That would have been clever. Again! I mean, that's what they say! Well, here's the thing that's so frustrating. If this movie were calibrated right, that might be a nice twist. But it's, again, lost in the miasma of all these bad plot points. Like, this has happened after we've had the scene where Giddies has found out that Kitty is Catherine. That, for reasons, she's suddenly in his home lighting candles. And I'm like, did the power go out? <laughs> Was there an earthquake again? Earthquake knocked out the power, yeah. <laughs> but the, the hallway lights are on. And all of a sudden, we finally see the fiancé coming in. And she's throwing the ring into the wine. And, and in the middle of all of this, suddenly... Giddies goes, oh, you have the poppy that was Catherine's favorite flower in your hair. <laughs> so bad. And she's like, oh, you burned the seed. Like, she s- explains everything that Khan did, so, like, you know it. And then, I think it's because she says, it's like dying hair, that he finally has a eureka <laughs> moment and goes, your hair is dyed. You're Catherine. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, how many times do we have to spell it out for you? It's embarrassing how bad he is at cognition at this point. And I just feel like, wow. So I guess my question is, did he let Berman off because he's married to Kitty and that was a way of protecting Catherine? Or did he let him off because he was sad that he had prostate cancer and wasn't going to live much longer? I took it it was all about protecting Catherine. Okay, so if he went down, Catherine wouldn't get the inheritance, she wouldn't get the oil. And he's willing to change the wire and break the law to make it right. Yeah, because they were blackmailing her. If she didn't sign over the mineral rights, they were going to expose who she really was. So I took it that Jake wanted to protect her. It does actually make sense. But again, it's one of those things that would only work if everything leading up to it had worked. And that didn't happen. And so then we just have this climax where you say Harvey Keitel is good. This scene where all of a sudden he just decides... (laughs) That, like, I could never tell Kitty I was impotent, so I'm just going to light a cigarette and blow myself up in suburbia while stink water is shooting out of the toilets and the (laughs) sink and all that. Well, that's not stink water. That was oil. Yeah, I understand that. I'm just saying that, like, this feels like a good scene. I kind of went with it as a melancholy ending. Not nearly as good as the last one, but... (laughs) I'll say. (laughs) I guess I was empathizing far too much for your tastes with... Berman and feeling really bad for the cancer he had and tried to hide from his wife and tried to be a strong man and make sure his wife was well taken care of, kind of noble to do for your cheating wife. But you could only be on his side if you had followed everything up to that point. And the, him flopping on the golf course and all of that, like those Caddyshack Pratt falls, there's no sympathy for this character. Agreed. I was trying to figure out, is he blowing himself up so Catherine could sue whoever and get money from that? Like, is this some way to take care of her after his death? It's definitely him saying that once I die, it'll go to her. So conveniently, as I've come to this epiphany, suddenly the whole place is exploding with fumes and flammables. And I'm just going to light it up. (laughs) And I want to laugh because there's like a family with a baby in the next room. I'm not even sure they got out. (laughs) They show everyone running out. Mickey runs out. I just want to know, when did Harvey Keitel record that message for Catherine that gets played afterwards? You know, again, all of this feels so sloppy. And again, it's the kind of thing you diagram being like, 
I want it to follow the blueprint of Chinatown. So it's got to have sort of these beats, but then you got to do the hard work. The hard work is making the beats feel earned. Anybody could emulate what had been done before, but in order for us to feel that dramatically, in order for us to see this ending that it's sad that Catherine doesn't wind up with anyone and even throws herself at Giddy's, they didn't build that movie. They didn't get to that emotion. It's just overwhelmingly sad in a different way that this is the sequel to Chinatown. Yeah, that ending bit was a very false note to end on, that Kitty would try to sleep with him and he'd say no. There wasn't enough character through points for either of them for me to understand either person's choice in that scene. Mm-mm. Other than that, that would just be icky. It was already icky, like, what happened to you, and now that's super icky that I would take advantage of you in this emotional state. Good choice that he didn't sleep with her, but that's maybe the only good choice in this film. Yeah, and they try going for some similar line as, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, like, the past, it never goes away, and it, like you said, Stuart, nothing feels earned in this. Yeah, it could work if you had made a powerful movie, that could be the right stinger. But here, I'm like, oh, it'll go away. It's already gone. This thing is evaporated before our eyes. It's over. Well, before it's over, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend or are you going to continue beating upon the two Jakes? (laughs) Jacob. You know, it's interesting. When I was like in my 20s and 30s, I'd revisit films I hadn't seen since I was a kid. And as an adult, they take on a whole new life. Like, wow, I didn't understand any of this as a child. Like, what did I get out of this as a kid? That happened to me a lot with James Bond. Even as a kid, like, I'd watch James Bond films. I don't know why he would have to go to Paris or this country or that country, but there was cool gadgets and cool chases, and I liked that as a kid. And then I watched it as an adult. I'm like, okay, I understand why he's traveling around, and yeah, it's convoluted sometimes, but, like, I understood him. Like, there was some sense to make. Watching this, I was going through my childhood watching James Bond films all over again, where, like, what is going on? I don't understand why we're going here. Who is this person? Except there's no cool chases or gadgets in this film to enjoy while I didn't get anything else. And, like, that is not a fun feeling. Like, you should not have to work this hard for the two Jakes. And I think even if you work hard to try to get this one, it's not an enjoyable experience. The last time I think I was this confused, if you've seen the time travel film Primer, which is, I'm told, very smart and based on very real physics, and I believe it because I get that sense. I don't understand it at all, but I feel like there's something true to that film. This one... There's nothing there to really understand. I think, Arnie, I get what you're saying where you enjoyed some of this. Like, I like the basic premise of, like, did Berman kill his partner premeditated or not? But when you get into those details, it falls apart. So if you just want a mystery noir film, I guess this will do. It's a mystery to me, for sure. There's some real bad acting, but, like, some people just like watching mystery films. And maybe this will work. It's not like the worst thing ever, but it's pretty incompetent when it comes to the direction, when it comes to the acting. All those things that were great with Chinatown are missing here in a very convoluted story that I just gave up on finally because I don't think it can be followed. And so for me, why? well, yeah, there's a mystery here that maybe you could just have fun wash over you. I don't think it's worth it. I'm going to give it a not recommend. Stuart. Forget it, Jake. It's not Chinatown. Hell, it's not even Big Trouble in Little China. (laughs) It's not even competent. I could forgive the movie. That it didn't live up to the tragic power of the original was almost a foregone conclusion. Okay, do better than one of the greatest movies of all time. Probably not going to happen. Would have loved if it did. But give me an uneven sequel with some juicy moments that follows the original blueprint. Air a little bit more dirty laundry about the history of Los Angeles. 
I could get into that. I could give that a green arrow. I could forgive a lot of problems if they had reconnected with the spirit of the Polanski film. But, yeah, is anything working here in Two Jakes? I ask you. The story is clearly incoherent. It's very obvious Hugh Chunks are just not here. They didn't write it. They didn't make it. They didn't film it. It's not on an editing room floor. They weren't changed. The film did not get made. And consequently, you have someone that is just trying to grab at straws and gets performances that are pretty uniformly terrible from everyone. Nicholson being maybe the worst. You know, he's lost all the enthusiasm for being in the limelight that I associate with Giddies, and now just seems trapped in this unfunny sex farce about middle age. And even the production details. It's a very bland-looking movie. A good cinematographer and real professional people, and all of this looks like it could have been on TV. And I just, I walk away really appreciating even more Roman Polanski, what he contributed to that original movie. And it's very clear that Chinatown could have wound up being this confusing bore before us. Not only was it helmed by a really good filmmaker, but it was a really good filmmaker that was processing grievance and tragedy. He had left Los Angeles because Sharon Tate died. And like Jake Giddis, he had to go back into his Chinatown to face it. That power came through. That real-life pain came through in that moment, which is why that movie is so searing and amazing. And this movie, I hear that Nicholson wanted to make it. I hear that it was a passion project. But all I can see is a fat man flying in the air while his ass lights a well. (laughs) And I just think that many people will tell you Godfather 3 is the shit sequel of all time, that it ruins a classic. But for me, this is far worse than Godfather 3. This is easily the most unnecessary, embarrassing sequel of a movie I love that I can think of. It's a very strong not recommend. There's nothing as bad as this film as Sofia Coppola. Mm, I feel like this is almost two and a half hours. This is longer than Chinatown, by the way. And, like, it's all Sofia Coppola for that two hours and 20 minutes or whatever it runs. Madeline Stowe writhing around on the ground (laughs) trying to get to the tape recorder is worse than Sofia Coppola. That's a few seconds versus her entire subplot in Godfather 3. There were good things in Godfather 3. It had ambitions it couldn't reach. This movie, whatever ambitions it had, didn't come through the facts. Well... I like this film best of the three of us. I mean, I watched it looking for a noir thriller that I knew wouldn't live up to Chinatown. And as Jacob said, if you're just looking for a noir thriller, this is one. (laughs) And I did feel like there were some decent performances going on here and the overall mystery was intriguing enough, you know? And I did like that initially it was about the water and this time now it's about California oil. I thought that was an interesting motif to continue there and to continue exploring the history of California or Los Angeles. So I really don't think this movie is the piece of dog shit that Stuart is describing it out to be. I would not scrape the two jakes off of my shoe. But would I recommend it? I was right on that borderline. And I think coming into this recording, I was going to recommend it, but you guys have pointed out enough flaws that are completely valid that I'm going to eke it over to not recommend because you pointed out things I didn't notice as far as some glaring plot holes. And yes, Madeline Stowe is that bad. I mean, 
she alone is almost a reason to not recommend it. It's a messy film. It's certainly not the worst thing ever. I will happily watch more Jack Nicholson films than more Uva Bowl films, but uh, we cannot recommend. Yeah, well, you don't love Chinatown the way that I do either, and I think that's got to be part of it. Because I love Chinatown that much, I don't want to see this be the sequel. Oh, so this is your episode nine. I now completely get that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the rise of Jake. <laughs> yeah, the way that you freak out about J.J. Abrams, I'm freaking out about these artistic choices. But third movie, would you be game? I mean, they're not going to make it. They're not going to do it. But Town's Conception, what we know about it, it wasn't written. Shit, this movie wasn't written. <laughs> but the outline was it was going to be called Giddies versus Giddies. It was going to be set in the late 60s. And Jake would be getting pretty up there and divorced. So it's a Kramer versus Kramer kind of thing. California had just passed this new no-fault divorce law that was changing the way that he was doing his infidelity business. And he'd get involved in a case where, I don't know, shenanigans again. But what resource? The element of force this time was air. So it would be about the aviation industry. Aviation industry? I thought by air you'd go with pollution, smog, like the big thing in L.A. No, I think like air travel. Who controls the air? Huh. You might be right. I don't know. No one really knows what it's going to be. It will never be made. But I always felt like the third movie did get made as this little forgotten throwaway movie in the mid-90s. Mulholland Falls, you ever hear of it? Not the David Lynch thing. Not the drive, the falls. Yes. Michael Madsen, Nick Nolte. It was very much like Chinatown. And it was all about the rise of nuclear power in Los Angeles while they investigated a murder. If you want the third movie, you probably could do worse. My memory tells me it's better than The Two Jakes. But it's worth pointing out that Robert Town has not finished with Jake Giddies. He is not making the third movie, but he is making a Netflix series with David Fincher that should be coming out in the next year. I don't know. Those Netflix stock holdings just came out. Not looking good. They might not be around. I do know that Fincher did a commentary for Chinatown on the Blu-ray I watched. I didn't listen to it, but I guess he's a longtime fan, I suppose. I hope it's better than Mank. Yeah, I mean, I'll be there. Believe me, I want it to be good. Yes, I will be watching it. A Chinatown prequel, the early days of Jake Giddies. I'm just trying to imagine who the actor would be. Who has the cachet. Who under 30 could be the next Nicholson? I mean, Timothy Chalamet doesn't feel quite right. Will Poulter. Yeah, Christian Slater's too old now to do it. Yeah, right. Yeah, anybody that... Yeah, there's a lot of people I could name that are 40 or, or greater. See, I think Fassbender, but he's... He's old too now. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about early 20s. Lucas Hedges. I mean, they're, they're young actors that are good. But I don't know if any of them are Nicholson, so it'll be curious to see. And I will be looking forward to seeing the Chinatown show. And one other thing, project that's happening, because the background of the making of Chinatown was so amazing, Ben Affleck has signed on to tell that story, the behind-the-scenes movie, based on one of the books that I read for research, The Big Goodbye. He's bringing that to the screen as well. I don't know if he's playing any of the characters. That would be kind of weird to see. Him as Nicholson. Yeah, he kind of did that with Hollywood Land, where he played that original Superman. Right. So I don't know if that'll be any good or not. Ben Affleck as a director is hit or miss, but I will be tuning in for that one as well. And we're not done with Long in the Works sequels. If you thought it was bad that it took 16 years to get Chinatown to, 
How many decades has it taken to get Top Gun to? <laughs> but we're covering it this Friday, dear it. How many decades has it taken to come out since it was finished? <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be 34 years, and it's ended up being 36 years thanks to COVID. But I've had the need, the need for speed for two years now. I'm finally going to get that need fulfilled when we review Top Gun 2 this Friday. I don't know, like, this may be the longest stretch between sequels, right? <laughs> That'll be really something if 36 years later, they can capture that 80s vibe. It's a good thing Tom Cruise has got that immortality from Scientology. I was about to say, yes, he does look well-preserved, and we'll see if the new kids are up to snuff. I'll put it this way. The trailer has some great aerial dogfights, so I imagine it'll at least be a good popcorn film. The way they filmed it, Definitely see it on the biggest, loudest screen you can. And this is for people who have donated for our Tom Cruise retrospective series that's been available for about two years now. Yeah, that was during COVID, right? <laughs> it was pre-COVID. We thought Top Gun 2 was coming out, so spring of 2020 is when we started offering it. It is currently available, if you haven't donated yet, as our Mach 2 donation drive level, which means you get every donation drive available for spring 2022, including Jurassic Park, Lord of the Rings, Twilight, Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts. All of the details can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. But we do need your support to keep the Jets fueled here at Now Playing. So thank you very much, and we hope you'll join us Friday for Top Gun Maverick. And you mentioned Twilight. That is our Silver Level series. We will be getting to it a few Fridays from now. But I'd like to point out that there was more than one vampire werewolf romance story of the 2000s. And we're covering both. One of which starts next week. Underworld. Kate Beckinsale. Scott Speedman. Lichens and I don't know what the vampires are called. Do you guys know? Vampires? I've only seen the first one. I didn't realize they were romances like Twilight. They look like action films. <laughs> I can tell you the pitch was that got it sold Romeo and Juliet in The Matrix. In The Matrix? I really don't remember that first film then. <laughs> oh, the black leather. They definitely shopped at The Matrix store. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is Trinity trying to, yes, wherefore art thou her Romeo. And again, a special thanks to David Kraft for his support, picking not one, but two movies for us to do, allowing us to do this entire duology and not only talk about the two Jakes for five minutes at the end of a Chinatown review. So thank you, David. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, get out of here, listeners. We're doing you a big favor. You want to do your partner a big favor? Take him home. Take him home! Just get him the hell out of here! Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be a mensch. Otherwise, I'm going to have to give you a serious reprimand. And a special thanks to David Kraft for his incredible support of the show and for picking this movie for our hosts to review. The customer is always right. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. 
I can make the rest of your life awful easy. You never know when you're going to need something extra. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I wonder, is it too late for us to have a look around? Oh, no, allow me to show you. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Oh, he's looking forward to it, Mr. Giddes. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I'm just trying to make a living. I don't want to become a local joke. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. I want the big boys that are making the payoffs. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Is this a business or an obsession with you? Associate produced by Jason Latham. These are my operatives, and at some point they're going to have to assist me. I can't do everything myself. Now Playing is edited by Santiago and Arnie. It takes finesse and experience. Now Playing credits read by Brock. Old Cactus Earl probably hoodwinked quite a few city boys with his Will Rogers routine. But I knew he wasn't talking about two horses on their honeymoon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. What can I tell you, kid? You're right. You're right, you're right. You're right. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. There's no point in getting tough with me. I'm I don't get tough with anyone, Mr. Giddies. My lawyer does. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I suppose we'll be hearing from your attorney. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. And then Mickey Nice presumably went in there, or maybe it was that other guy, Liberty, and broke his jaw for talking. And so what I'm wondering is... No, I guess I understand that.